Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the Word of God, our regular epistolary lesson for this Sunday, as we find it written in Paul's letter to the Philippians in the third chapter, especially the twentieth verse. For our citizenship is in heaven. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, dear friends, you who are here in God's house this morning, and you also Christian fans who are worshiping with us by means of the radio. Last Sunday, you recall, our text was taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and today it is also taken from that same letter. It was while Paul was on his second missionary journey, you remember, that he went over into Macedonia, up into the city of Philippi, and there established the first Christian congregation on the continent of Europe. Paul always loved that congregation dearly, so that years later when he was a prisoner in Rome, he wrote a letter to that congregation, and we know it as the letter to the Philippian congregation. And in our text this morning, Paul is telling the Philippian Christians what their high position is as Christians. He is telling them what an exalted position is theirs because they are children of God. What a high enviable position it is. And then he tells them just what that position, that status is since they are Christians. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, he says, Philippian Christians, because you are Christians, this is your high position. You are no less than citizens of heaven. You are not citizens of earth. You are not citizens of this world. You are no less than citizens of the heavenly country. And the same Paul speaks to you and me this morning through the word of God, reminding us that as Christians, this is our high status. It is our incomparable position that we are no less than citizens of heaven citizens of the heavenly kingdom, not citizens of the earth. And sometimes, I suppose, in your life and mine, it's true, a statements like that leave us cold, do they not? We say to ourselves, all right, so I am a citizen of heaven. I am not a citizen of earth. What about it? Is that such an exalted position after all? And in your life and mine, there are times, are there not, when we say to ourselves, well, I don't know whether that is such an exalted, enviable, incomparable position that I am a citizen of heaven. We may say sometimes it seems like citizens of the earth, citizens of this world, have the odds in their favor. They have the advantages. They seem to have the blessings. We do not seem to have the blessings and the advantages that citizens of this earth have. And then we begin to wonder, do we not? You know, today is the second last Sunday of the present church year. Next Sunday brings this church year to an end. For we remember that the calendar year, of course, begins on January the 1st. But the church year does not begin at that time. It begins the first Sunday in Advent, which happens to be the first Sunday in December this year. The church year ends next Sunday. And as we think about the lengthening of days, and as we think about our departure from this world, it is well that this morning we take a look at our position, at our status, 
And if this is such a mighty position, such a high calling, that we are no less than citizens of heaven and not citizens of earth, we ought to look at it to see whether the odds, the blessings, the advantages are not on our side, not on the side of citizens of this world or of this earth. On the basis of the word of God, Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, he was filled with this joy. We are no less, he says, than citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of the earth. And the advantages are ours if we just stop the thing for a moment. Because in the first place, let's know this. Being citizens of heaven, because we are Christians, that means this. It means that we are friends of the cross of Christ. We are, on the contrary, not enemies of the cross of Christ as our citizens of this earth. Paul aptly describes what he means by citizens of the earth or of this world. He says there are many that walk and he told the Philippians and I've mentioned this to you before and he says now I mention it to you again with tears that he says they are the enemies of the cross of Christ who is a citizen of this world not a citizen of heaven. Any man who is an enemy of the cross of Christ you know, those are words that you've got to look at twice. You notice Paul does not say by inspiration they are enemies of Christ. He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There's a tremendous difference. Many a citizen of this earth, of this world, who is not a citizen of heaven, is not an enemy of Christ. Oh, many a citizen of this earth loves him. He will tell you that Christ is the greatest teacher that ever lived. He will point you to the Sermon on the Mount and say, isn't it wonderful? Look what he taught. And then many a citizen of this earth will point to Christ and say, what a marvelous example. There is no greater example in all the world than Christ. And they will thrill to him and say, if you walk in the way which he gave as a pattern, then that's all you need. They love him as a teacher and they love him as an example. But they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There is something about the cross that the citizen of this earth doesn't like. He has no room in his life for the cross. Why? You say the cross of Jesus means his death. And therefore the man of the world says, as far as I'm concerned, he didn't have to die on the cross. All that you need is to have him as a teacher. And all that you need is to have him as an example. And then follow him. Live like he lived. Be good to your neighbor. Live a clean, decent life. A good moral life. Be honest. Be above reproach. And that's all you need for salvation. You see, he looks at the cross and he says, that's slaughterhouse religion. That's the blood. I do not want the blood. But you see, Paul says he is an enemy of the cross of Christ. Why? Because, look at Jesus, he did not come into this world to be primarily a teacher. Jesus Christ didn't come into this world to be primarily an example in which you and I are to follow him and walk. He came primarily and foremost to die. And when a man looks at Jesus and he denies the very reason why he came, he takes unto himself something that is secondary. Jesus Christ came for the cross. Why? Because he knew that who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one. He knew that you and I, if we follow him by an example, cannot save ourselves. 
He knew that you and I could never be perfect, that he is a perfect example and we can never attain to perfection. And so that's why he, God's son, came out of the ivory palaces and went to the cross to die because in that death he knew that he would have to atone for our guilt and for our punishment, that in his death and in his death alone salvation might be possible for the human race. A man who is a citizen of this earth is a man that may love Christ, but he's an enemy of the cross. And therefore we say, where is there any advantage? A child of God who is a citizen of heaven, he is a friend of the cross of Christ because that's the center of what he believes. It is the cross because he stands at the foot of Calvary and he confesses his sins and he knows that within himself there dwelleth no good thing and he knows that only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ is there forgiveness, life, and salvation. And therefore, when we are citizens of heaven, listen, the advantage is on our side, the blessing is on our side, because ours is the advantage at the end of life of heaven. And the man who is a citizen of this earth, his is hell. There is a tremendous difference, is there not? Without the cross, without Jesus Christ that died, friends, if all you can see in him that he was only a teacher, that he was only an example, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ and you are denying that which is vital and that which is necessary. And no man shall see heaven on the basis of following Jesus as an example. It's the cross that stands paramount and that stands center in Christian theology and that must stand as a friend in your life and mine. Is there any difference between heaven and hell? When Jesus talked about Judas who lost his salvation, he said it were better for that man that he had never been born. Then he said one day, for what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you had the whole world and you lost your soul and you lost the citizenship of heaven, Jesus says you're the loser because there are no compensations. Well, that's the loss for which nothing can make up for it. It were better that you and I had never been born. It's strange, isn't it, that in our lives when we are reminded we are citizens of heaven, not this earth, that sometimes we still feel that the advantages, the blessings, again, the real privileges, uh, the odds are all on the side of the other person, but there is a difference. The difference is heaven with God eternally or hell. Paul says, again, their end is destruction, their end is perdition. Perdition, again, Satan is the son of perdition and eternity separated from the very presence of God's grace and God's mercy. The advantages, the blessings are on our side. What a noble position, what an ennobling place what an enviable stand and status is ours. We are citizens of heaven, not of this earth. And if this morning, on the second last Sunday of the year, as the days lengthen and we think about the end of time, if you and I could take that truth and write it on our hearts never to forget it, that this, that we are citizens of heaven, not of this earth, then we would watch in our life that no man under any circumstances will ever take away from you and me the Christ of the cross. 
owing to all of the ecumenical movements that are going on and they're fine, bear this in mind, there is one central truth that we dare not lose, and that is the Christ that died. When you take Calvary away from Jesus, you've got nothing left. He is vital. On my trip recently when I was in Europe, I was in Geneva, Switzerland, and we passed the place of the United Nations Assembly, which was in session. And then we rode along and we came to a place of a rock, and there was a plaque on the rock that said, this place marks the place where Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations had its beginning, and they, where they held their meetings in Geneva, Switzerland. And when you think that in World War I, 8,500,000 young men of the nations of the world lost their lives in World War I, and our great president, Woodrow Wilson, said, this shall not happen again. And there was the League of Nations with his famous 14 points. But Woodrow Wilson found out to his sorrow that the 14 points of the League of Nations, that the 13,000 minute points of international law could not prevent another war. And he himself wrote that if civilization is to stand, Man must be redeemed spiritually, and that's it. And when man is redeemed spiritually, don't forget, he is redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Don't let it slip through your fingers and mind. We have an exalted position. We are citizens of no less than heaven, of the heavenly country, not of this earth. Well, that means that we are friends of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you can emblazon it on your soul and mind this morning that we'll never forget that, don't let anybody under any circumstances take from you and me the Christ of the cross. Paul put it this way, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. When he wrote to the Philippians, Paul was reminding him, look at our exalted position. He said, Philippians, as Christians, this is your position. This is your exalted place. This is your great status. You are citizens of no less than heaven itself, not citizens of earth. And therefore, the advantages and the blessings and the odds are all on our side, even though at times we may wonder about them. Because in the second place, let's know this, that being citizens of heaven means this, that God is our God, in contrast to those who are citizens of this earth, whose God is their belly. Paul says, whose God is their belly, who glory in their shame, who mind earthly things. What's he talking about? The man of the world, the man who is not a citizen of heaven, he has a God, but it's not God. It is, again, his own belly or his own stomach or his own cravings within. He has one aim in life, and that is to get all that he can of the material things of life. Because to him, life consists only in the abundance of the things which a man has, and therefore you've got to get, and you've got to have, if you are going to be happy. He knows no God but his own cravings. And he craves and he craves and he goes on because he spends and absorbs all of his time in the things of this life because the man that is a citizen of this earth 
is thoroughly convinced that the only joy and happiness that he shall find will be in the material things of life. How about citizens of heaven? Citizens of heaven have as their God, God himself. And when you and I as Christians have as our God, God, and not the cravings of our own hearts for the material things of life, then we allow God to remind us of the fact that we are not citizens of this earth because we are transients, we are pilgrims. We're just passing through, we're tourists. We have no abiding city here. And God writes it on your soul and mine that we are just strangers and pilgrims. And therefore, God warns you and me not to wrap ourselves too tightly around the things of this life because we aren't going to be here very long. We're just passing through. We are only tourists. We are not citizens of the earth. And when God Almighty warns you and me that we are not to become so completely absorbed into our life that these things shall overshadow him and that these things will dim God into our life and blind us, then we have this advantage, the advantage of being citizens of heaven, that we have peace with God, whether God blesses us with a lot of material things or with very little, and the man who is a citizen of this life has no peace within, even though he should own the world. The man that lives as a citizen of this life soon finds out that there is only a passing satisfaction in the material things of life. As soon as something is acquired, the craving starts all over again for something more. And the man craves and he craves, and then comes fear, fear of losing what he's got. And so he lives, there is no peace of mind. Because God made you and me that conscience, that part within you and me that is the moral stamina and the moral quality, and that voice of God within us can never be satisfied by the material things. But when again our God is the true God and not our belly, then we know this, that God in pointing us to him, having him and Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Everything is all right. We are saved. It matters not then whether God blesses us with abundance or not. Many a child of God has been blessed with abundance. Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. Isaac and Jacob were extremely wealthy people. David and Solomon were extremely wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was an extremely wealthy man. Nicodemus was a wealthy man, but again, they knew that they were citizens of heaven, and never were these things allowed to blot out God. The advantages are on our side because citizens of heaven have peace within. And when there is restlessness within, which means that there is a soul without God in Jesus Christ, there is no peace, there is no happiness, there is no contentment. On this second last Sunday of the church year, oh, that God would write it on your soul and on mine that we are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth, just pilgrims. If we would write it there never to forget it, then whenever adversity comes in your life and mine, we will gladly accept it and we will stop feeling sorry for ourselves 
and becoming despondent. Why does God send adversity in your life and mine, sparing none of us? John Milton put it this way. He said, sweet are the uses of adversity, which like a toad, ugly and venomous, hath yet a jewel beneath her crown. Have you ever asked, why does God send adversity in your life and mine, we who are citizens of heaven? You want to know one reason? Because God knows how weak you are and how weak I am and how easy it is to become so absorbed in the things of this life. I mean honestly, I do not mean being crooked. I mean getting these things in an honest and an upright way. But God knows that you and I can get so absorbed in these things that somehow or other they choke out God and they blind God to us. Then God, because he loves you and me, knows something's got to be done. He isn't going to give you and me up that easily. And then he sends adversity. Why? Because God knows if there is anything that will make you and me stop if we're getting too absorbed in these earthly things and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I am so absorbed, I am forgetting God, but adversity will do it. I talked to a man when he was offered a job, $25,000 a year. What a salary and what an increase for him. And as we spoke, he said to me, don't worry about that money. He said, you see, God took my son. When he took my son, I know I'm not going to wrap myself around the things of life. Why was it that one of you said when you had your new home all built that you were afraid to move into it because you thought something might happen? Isn't it strange if in your life and mine we are prone to be so absorbed in a good way with decent material things that we might blind God out of our life, that then adversity comes and we say, wait a minute, God, something's wrong. That's when we ought to thank God and say, thanks, God, that you've taught me that I am a stranger and a pilgrim here and that I'm not a citizen of this earth. But what do we do sometimes? We get the blues and we start feeling sorry for ourselves and we start down the road of despondency. What is despondency? Listen, despondency means this, that I'm a bit irked and put out at God. And I say, God, you oughtn't to treat me that way. God, that isn't right. I'm hurt. And therefore, we get the blues, and we get depressed, and we think God's got something against us when the very opposite is true. God's trying to get you and me to put him back where he belongs. And then we start down that horrible, tragic road of despondency. I'm mentioning this because I've got it on my heart. Not less than three people this last week have been to see me because they were despondent and talking about taking their life. And one of them said to me, what's the difference if I take my life? I only hurt myself, don't I? What's the difference? Now we're talking about all of us on this side of the Jordan, you who are alive and I'm alive. 
What about this thing? When I get depressed and I get despondent because I'm a bit put out at God, do I have the right to take my life because I am going to hurt only myself? Do you know of any place in the Word of God where because I'm feeling sorry for myself that I've got a right to take my life? Do you know of any place like that? Do you know that any place where that would excuse it? That doesn't excuse it, does it? The big thing is we may say no man in his right mind would take his life. God judges that, not I, and I would never step in where God belongs. But listen, if you are deliberately planning, right now is the time to do some thinking. Over 200,000 in our country every year attempted, over 30,000 completed. May I ask you right now from the bottom of my heart to yours, do you know what you're doing right now? Are you accountable for your life? If you're on the road to despondency, answer me. Do you know you're on the road? Are you accountable? Do you know right from wrong right now? Oh, not when the deed is done, but where are you now? Did you have sense enough to come to church or not to come to church? Are you have sense enough now to listen or not listen? Do you know what you're doing? Do you have a knowledge of right and wrong? Listen, to take one's life is a deliberate act. And therefore it depends on this, am I accountable when I deliberately plan to take my life? A man only hurts himself, is that right? Why, there's something about taking my life that is different than if I take the life of somebody else. If I took your life, there would still be time that I could repent, that I could get right with God. But you see, when I take my own life deliberately, when I plan to do it just because I'm on the road that's despondency and I take my own life, don't you realize that then you and I stand before Almighty God in death with our blood on our own soul and there isn't any time for repentance when death takes place? The Word of God knows no place after death for repentance. You may say to me, well, can I repent ahead of time? Well, listen, the very essence of repentance is this, that if I'm sorry I won't do it, you can't do it ahead of time. That's the tragedy. I'm talking to you and to myself on this side of the Jordan. God's the judge when these things take place, not you or I. Doesn't a man hurt only himself, but, oh, God, what you and I can do to ourselves? Write it on your soul this morning, will you? When you start walking down that damnable, horrible, dark road of despondency, for God's sake, don't think that it's pleasing God. Say to yourself, God, I'm sorry that I'm irked at you, and for God's sake, turn around and come back and talk to someone. Could I say it any clearer? I had to say it. It's on my heart. There's too many of you who are talking about this thing you don't want to live because you're feeling sorry for yourselves. I'm at your service 24 hours out of the day. You and I are citizens of heaven. Don't walk that road. Don't go down that road and let somebody take the heavenly citizenship away because we are despondent. It's a bad road. Stay off.
don't ever get on. Never. Never. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he was writing with a thrill in his heart, and he was reminding them, this is your high calling. We are citizens of heaven. Think of it, no less than citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. We're only pilgrims here. And some of them wondered, and again, as you and I wondered, we said, the odds, the advantages, the blessings all seem on the other side, but they aren't, because, listen, being citizens of heaven as Christian means this, that we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to do all things unto himself. Isn't that marvelous? Paul said, listen, we as Christians, we wait for his return. The man of the world, the citizen of the earth, isn't waiting for Christ to come again. He doesn't believe he's coming. But you and I know that before he died, he said he'd die. And he said, and after I die, I will rise again. He arose. And we know that he went up the slope of the Mount of Olives one day, and I walked it, and I was there. Where again, he blessed the eleven, and he went to heaven. The angel said, he's coming back. Remember that? Oh, he's coming back. He conquered the grave. What's going to keep him from coming back? He is coming back. And then when he comes back, what is our advantage? But when he comes, he has told us this, that our bodies can go down in the graves and he will raise them up and we will put on a glorified body, a body like the Son of God has, no longer touched by sickness and disease. And those who are only citizens of this world will put on a corruptible body, which will be a body for damnation. There is a tremendous advantage on our side when we stop to think. And on this second last Sunday of the church year, when the shadows begin to lengthen, we begin to think about the end of time. What we not then, if we write it on our souls, God, don't ever let me forget it. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm only a stranger. I'm only a tourist. I'm only a pilgrim. I'm only passing through here. I don't belong here. And therefore, don't let me get so absorbed in the things of this life, God, that I blot you out of my life. Oh, then we ought to be examples to one another and to encourage one another when sickness comes, ought we not? What ought we to do as Christians? Oh, death's going to look for a cause, isn't it? You are going to die, and so am I, and death's going to find some reason. It's usually sickness. And that sickness can take multitudinous forms. Oh, the time may come in your body and mind will start to slowly waste away, and everybody can see it. But oh, we can follow the example of Paul, can't we? And we can go to one another and say, all oh, these bodies of ours, they can become so contaminated with sin. And they can go down and oh, they can be so destroyed with all kinds of vermin and all kinds of diseases. But oh, when Christ comes again, we can say, but we're going to put on a new body. It's going to be a changed body. It's going to be a glorious, glorified body, never again showing the signs of sickness and disease. And then when we can encourage one another, doesn't it mean this, that as the shadows lengthen, if sickness has come to us, especially incurable illness, we can thank God for it because, you know, God has a purpose in that. Well, that's the way God makes us homesick, doesn't he? You know, we can even be a tourist and we get so absorbed in the things of life that we sometimes forget that we're citizens of heaven and we're going there and we wonder, well, how will God get us to want to go? And he sends sickness, doesn't he? Then we get homesick. Oh, there was Abraham, he left her of the Chaldees, remember, and he came on over into the land of Canaan, into a strange land. And again, through all the things of life and the trials that he had, he became homesick. And we read about Abraham, and we are told that Abraham, he looked for a city which had foundations, the real eternal city, whose builder and maker is God. He got homesick. He wanted to go home, and 
when sickness comes to your body and mine and we know that it's incurable something precious starts doesn't we we get home say we get to long for the homeland we get to long for the fulfillment of our citizenship i had a birthday last week and of course i missed the card that i usually got from my sister and when i thought of her again it always came a day late always late with a card or a birthday card but I saw her body waste away, just wasting away and draining away. And I saw a heavenly homesickness there, longing to go home, longing to be with her Lord. And you know, this thing of sickness, it's God's way of telling you and me, child, I'm getting a bit homesick for you. We waited in heaven a long time and now I've sent sickness and soon I'll be calling for you. We're anxiously awaiting your coming. We're a bit homesick for you. The mansions are ready. It's about time to come home. Well, that's the advantage of being a citizen of heaven, isn't it? Well, we can walk the glory road and when illness takes our bodies, we can look up and say, but I'm a citizen of heaven. The homeland, oh, the homeland, the land of souls freeborn. No gloomy night is known there, but a the fadeless morn. I'm sighing for that country. My heart is aching. Oh, to be at home in the homeland, to be there with our Christ, that's the fulfillment of a homesickness. God grant that this morning you will ride on your soul and I will ride it on mine. What a lofty position. You and I are no less than citizens of heaven. The advantage is on our side. Amen. The peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.